You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Phalanxes of Atlans by F. V. W. Mason. Chapter 4, Part A. On the arrival platform at Heliopolis reigned a fierce excitement. Nelson noted countless armed and unarmed warriors hurrying to and fro, desperately intent on reaching their various posts, and snarling ill-temperedly as they elbowed their fellows aside. As soon as they appeared, Hero Giles and his brother became the center of an excited press of gorgeously armored officers. Hmm murmured the aviator under his breath. Something's happened. Must be a revolution, an earthquake, or a democratic convention in town. These boys seem all steamed up. Intently he studied the ring of fierce, red-bearded faces surrounding his late hosts, and gathered that indeed some event of overwhelming importance had taken place. Presently a splendid falcon-eyed old man in a yellow cloak strode up, struggling to control himself. His resemblance to the two heroes struck Nelson immediately. Hearken ye, he cried, in that Elizabethan English, which appeared to be the hieratic language of the new Atlantis rulers. Have ye heard? The dog-conceived sons of Semites have broken the truce. But three measures gone by, a brigade of their mounted Podokusans swooped down on this very suburb of Tricca, yea, to the very gates of Heliopolis. The foul man-eating dogs slaughtered royal serfs and burnt two quarters of the suburb to the ground. Moreover, they seized that prisoner. Nelson's heart gave a great leap at the word, whom thou sentest from the mountain passes. What? In two swift strides Nelson was before the gray beard, his bloodshot eyes blazing with a strange light. What did you say about that prisoner? The old man, who had obviously not noticed Nelson's presence, was thunderstruck to hear him speak in English until Hero Giles briefly explained his presence. Yea, continued the elder flinging lamentations furiously over his shoulder. These swine of the lost tribes captured him and slew his escort. They have retreated towards the Apidanus, slaying, burning, and pillaging as they go. A sickening deadly fear gripped the weary aviator. This was too much. Bad as it was to have Richard Alden captured by these weird descendants of a long-vanished race, it was far worse to have him fall into the hands of their deadly enemies, the Jarmuthians decadent survivors of Israel's five lost tribes. The possibility of a rescue now seemed hopelessly and crushingly vague and distant. What could he do now? In dread despair he glanced about, amazed at the prodigious numbers of scowling men who hurried by, obviously intent upon the commencement of a campaign for revenge. Then Hero Giles turned his scarred warlike face, now set in granite lines. Come, friend Nelson. My uncle Anthony bids me take thee direct to the presence of his senior splendor, where he lies encamped at Cyrum, by the shores of Lake Copius. There he marshals the army of Atlans for a march through the hot country on Jezreel. I tell thee, thou hast come in stirring times. From Heraclea, Thebes, Is, and Maida will come the phalanxes. Once and forever we will deal the dogs of Jarmuth a final blow." Victor Nelson never forgot the hours that followed. Issuing at a fast trot from the tube-road terminal, the two heroes led the way to a vast structure in which were stabled both the terrific Allosauri and the Podokosauri, those swift dinosaurs which seemed to serve the Atlanteans as horses. 
The dreadful hiss and snarl of these monsters resounded in his ears long before the stables came in sight, and that curious musky odor he had noted in the tunnel was sickeningly strong. Everywhere he read signs of hurried preparations for war. Savage, surly, allosauri were led from their stables, one by one, long necks writhing snake-like backwards and forwards. Then their keepers would, after a moment's tussle, secure huge leather muzzles over their gaping jaws, and the huge reptiles would be led waddling along on their hind legs, out into a vast courtyard, there to hiss and strike at their nearest fellows. "'Thinkest thou couldst ride a podoko?' inquired Hero John, an anxious look on his handsome friendly features. "'They are difficult to manage, but swift in flight as the birds themselves.' "'I don't know,' replied the aviator, "'but I'm damn well going to try. If your emperor can help me rescue Alden, the sooner we get started, the better.' For all his brave resolutions, his heart sank as the green-kilted keeper led forth three podokasauri. Nelson stared curiously at them as, hopping along, they drew near, to bear needle-sharp teeth at him, while brazen stirrups on either side jangled softly against their rough, scaly hides. In evident high spirits, the beasts snuffed the air and pawed with their tiny front legs excitedly, making their sharp talons glisten like polished steel. A bridle dangled from the mouth of each, and a ring set in the thick upper lip served as a further means of control. At a sharp ova from an old and toothless keeper, the first podoko sank flat to the stone floor like a kneeling camel. "'A sturdy beast,' commented Hero Giles, tightening his belt and securing the clasps to the emerald-green war-cloak. "'Here, friend Nelson, thou hadst best don a helmet. The podokos on occasion throw back their heads, and so might wound thee.' So saying, he set foot in stirrup, and swung up into a saddle which was built up high in the cantle to correct the sharp downward slope of the reptile's muscular back. At a signal, Hero Giles's ugly mount rose to its height, and shuffled awkwardly sidewise, as the old keeper, his eyes very wide and curious, led forward Nelson's charger. "'Look,' said Hero John, with a reassuring smile, "'the chin-strap buckles so. Be sure it fits snug.' else it will pound on thy head to the bodoko's stride. If thou wouldst turn to the left, pull the rein so, to the right so, and if thou wouldst stop, pull strongly on the nose-ring. Tis not so difficult." He laid a friendly hand on Nelson's flannel-clad shoulder. "'How wilt thou manage thy curious weapon?' he inquired doubtfully. "'Perhaps thou hadst best leave it behind.' There was a grim smile on Nelson's weary, and wind-burned features. Not in your life, old son. This Winchester and I stick closer together than the Siamese twins." Nelson thrust his foot into a heavy stirrup, eased his weight into the high-peaked saddle, and gripped the pommel, for though an excellent horseman he had no clue as to what motion would ensue. It was wise he did so, for the podoko reared suddenly, almost flinging his rider from the saddle. Immediately Hero John mounted, raised his right hand, and dealt his podoko a stinging slap on the foreshoulder. The great reptile hissed in protest, but commenced to walk off with an awkward, hopping step. Nelson's mount followed suit. Faster and faster ran the podokos, their long and scale-covered necks stretched far out ahead, while their tails lifted correspondingly, much like that of an airplane about to take off. Phew! He must be doing all of forty-five, gasped Nelson. 
while the wind whistled about his ears and snapped madly at the yellow crest of his brazen helmet. The ride which ensued remained forever fixed in the aviator's memory. Like so many shots from a gun, the three podokos darted off out of the stables, past a gate guarded by a battery of retortii, whose red-plumed cannoneers sprang to attention as the three strangely assorted riders spread out into the amber perpetual light of Atlans. Nelson, on finding his balance, looked about him to receive impressions of immensely tall structures, of pyramids which, like the ziggurats of Samaria and Babylon, were surmounted with beautifully proportioned temples. Must be at least a million people in this burg of Heliopolis, thought Nelson, easing his Winchester. Hour after hour they sped along, frequently overtaking detachments of troops. Twice they halted to change mounts, though the podokos seemed quite tireless. At the end of five hours' furious riding, Nelson beheld a dense white cloud low on the horizon. "'What's that?' he demanded. "'Fog?' "'No,' Hero-John informed him. "'Yonder flows the Epidanus, the boiling river. Not far away to the left lies the frontier fortress of Sairum, where is encamped the Emperor, who will sit in judgment upon thee.' Nelson's heart sank. He had been so occupied with his fears for Alden that he had not dwelt upon his own precarious position. Scarcely half an hour elapsed, if Nelson's wrist-watch were running correctly, before he reached the tremendous swarming camp of Altorius the Twenty-Second, Emperor of Atlans. Hero Giles proved to be a powerful talisman, for everywhere officers and men alike saluted respectfully and sank on one knee as he passed. "'Wait here,' he snapped, as the podokos sank obediently to the dust. "'Brother John, do thou guard friend Nelson while I seek permission of his serene splendor to bring the wanderer into the presence.' Almost immediately the elder Atlantean returned, a frown on his scarred, rather brutal visage. "'Come,' he muttered. "'But I fear for thee, friend Nelson. His splendor is in a savage mood. This raid hath stirred his ire beyond all bounds.' Nothing like cheering up a patient before he goes into the operating-room, thought Nelson, and quietly threw off the safety on his Winchester. Six shots, he reflected. Well, if I go, I reckon I'll take some damn good company along. The aviator was led down a long passage, at every ten feet of which was posted an enormous scowling guard, whose spears, retortii, and armor were painted a brilliant jade green. Then a musical deep-toned gong boomed twice and Hero Giles halted before an exquisitely wrought door, which, without any apparent propulsion, silently slid back into the massive stone walls, revealing a huge, brilliantly lit circular chamber that was hung with emerald-green hangings. In the center, surrounded by a royal guard of nobles in splendidly jeweled armor, was reared a dais upon which stood a throne that blazed with the most varied collection of diamonds that Nelson could ever have imagined. "'Down on your face!' rasped Hero Giles, as in common with his brother he knelt and then fell prostrate on the cool black marble floor. "'Damned if I will!' murmured Nelson, and remained erect. Bolt upright, he looked across the interval and found himself staring into the furious eyes of one of the handsomest men he had ever beheld. Gripping his Winchester in a kind of port-arms position, he stood to attention, by some curious kink of the brain reverting to his military days. And so the two men, different as day and night, faced each other, 
Altorius the twenty-second, clad in robes of scarlet, and a glittering cuirass that glowed like the evening sun. His yellow head was truly splendid, reminiscent of that of a young Roman emperor. The hair, like that of the Hudsonian heroes, was blond, curly, and close-cropped. Yes, thought the odd but self-contained American, there was something genuinely imperial about the emperor's aquiline visage, for a high intelligent forehead and piercing blue eyes dominated a strong mouth, which was marred by a decidedly cruel twist at the corners. On him, also, was set the stamp of Sir Henry Hudson's dauntless race. "'Put him in a business suit and a soft grey hat,' mused Nelson, "'and you would find a dozen like him in any of London's best clubs.' "'Down on thy face, sirrah!' Outraged, the Emperor's voice rang like the peal of a brazen trumpet through the great pillared audience chamber. The nearest guardsmen held themselves ready, hand on sword-hilt. "'No!' Nelson's shaggy black head went back, as he found his tongue at last. "'No, Your Majesty, in America we have our own way of showing respect for authority. I'm an American, and with all respect I'll salute you as one.' So saying, his hand flicked up in a sharp military salute to the visor of that Atlantean helmet which he still wore. "'All damn foolishness,' he silently told himself. "'I feel like the lead in a ten-twenty-thirty melodrama, but I suppose it's got to be done.' The Emperor's teeth gleamed in a half-snarl as he sprang with Jovian wrath to his feet. "'Dog! How darest thou bandy words with us?' "'Have mercy!' hoarsely pleaded Hero John as he lay on the floor. "'Have mercy, O Splendor! He is but an ignorant wanderer from the ice-world!' It appeared that the young hero was something of a favorite, for the masterful thunder-browed Emperor checked himself, and still glowering, settled back on the diamond throne. He had my permission to enter and approach. Whereupon Hero Giles arose, and with many black looks at his guest, strode forward to briefly explain his presence. Nelson felt Altorius's blazing blue eyes search his face. Then he whom the dog-born Jeroboam captured was thy friend? Yes, replied Nelson with dignity, my best friend. Alden and I have traveled and wandered all over the world together. Over the world? The ice-world? Altorius seemed interested, for he leaned forward, muscle-corded arms very brown against the frosty brilliance of the stones studding his throne. He flipped back a scarlet cloak, and bent a searching look on the straight, unafraid figure below. Impatient to reach a decision, Nelson forbore to amplify the Emperor's assumption that the outside world was all ice and snow. Yes, he said, from the land of America. I've spoken with Hero Giles, Your Majesty's Captain-General." "'So then, no doubt, he has told you of the law of our country?' Altorius's white teeth shone against the depths of his short, curling beard. End of Part A